Amen, amen. Well, go ahead and take a seat. And as you do, grab your Bibles. Uh, turn to Acts chapter 16. If you don't have a Bible, there should be a hardback black one uh, somewhere right around you. That's our gift to you. Uh, we want our eyes on God's Word together this morning. We're going to be continuing in our study in the book of Acts, finishing up our sub-series here that we've been walking through called For the Good of the Church. And if you've been with us at all in our study here in the book of Acts, one of the things that I hope at this point uh, doesn't surprise you is that we see time and time and time again, Jesus' followers experience what? Persecution. Persecution. They suffer as a direct result for following Jesus. We've seen in Acts, and we've even talked about in, in Scripture in general, God's word promises us that when we commit to following Jesus, being faithful to follow him, we will suffer. And so at this point, I hope I don't have to convince anyone in this room that suffering will come as a direct result of following Jesus. But I think God's word has some really interesting things to say to us this morning, not just about the fact that we will suffer, but about how we are to suffer, how we are to walk through persecution and how we are to view that. And so let me read some passages of scripture for us this morning. The first one's here in First Peter. And it says this, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But, what's that word? Rejoice, insofar as you share Christ's suffering that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are what? Blessed, because the spirit of God, the spirit of glory in God rests upon you. Matthew 5 says this, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when, when others revile you, when they persecute you, when they utter all kinds of evil against you and falsely on my account, rejoice and what? Be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And then Philippians chapter 1 says this, For you have been given not only the privilege of trusting in Christ, but also the, what's that word? Privilege of suffering for him. Now, I wish this morning that we could stand up here and say, man, God's word, it says, blessed are you when you are successful. Blessed are you when your ministry is thriving, when your family is thriving. Blessed are you when, when you're safe and secure. But it doesn't say that. It says, blessed and be glad and rejoice when you are what? Persecuted. And I think many of us in this room know that to be true, but we've got to ask the question, how? How? How can we do that? How can we, in the midst of persecution, in the midst of suffering, how can we actually rejoice? How can we actually be glad? How can we actually say, this is a blessing for me? How do we do that? And I think our text this morning in Acts is going to help us answer that question. And so, we're going to pick up right where we left off last week. If you weren't here last week, we uh, dove into Paul's second missionary journey. And so you can see here on this map, he took off from Antioch, and he's kind of made his way up to this city called Philippi. And when we saw last week, God has done a great work in the city of Philippi. This, this woman named Lydia came to know Jesus, and, and there's a church beginning to form there in Philippi. And so we're going to pick up the story right where we left off with Paul and Silas and Luke and these guys uh, just faithfully following Jesus in this city of 
Philippi. And so what we're going to do with our time together is this. We're going to spend kind of the first third of this morning just walking through the story. My goal is that we could walk through the story in such a way that we feel like we're walking the streets of the city of Philippi and breathing in that air. We want to get there with Paul and Silas and feel what they were feeling. And then coming out of our time walking through the story, we're going to wrestle with uh, three ways that the text teaches us that we can rejoice in suffering for Jesus. And I want to be clear this morning, the kind of suffering, the kind of persecution we're talking about is, is, is persecution. It's a direct result of faithfulness to Jesus. Now, certainly the things we're going to look at apply to just suffering in general. They certainly apply to those maybe who are dealing with just pain or sorrow or loss or sickness. These certainly apply, but, but the text is talking specifically about suffering and persecution as a direct result of faithfulness to Jesus. And so let me pray for us. We're going to dive into our text together and wrestle through three ways that we can rejoice in the midst of suffering. And so let's pray together. Father, we come before you and I thank you. I praise you for who you are and for what you've done for us. And God, as we fix our eyes on Jesus, as we've already said this morning, we have a Savior who suffered for us, who was persecuted for us. And so, God, protect us from thinking that that not ought to be our story. That, yeah, 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 our Savior, Jesus, he suffered and he was persecuted. But us, like, we should live in comfort and safety and security. And, and God, those things are fine, but may we never seek after those as an end in and of themselves. God, bring us back to this morning just seeking after you and whatever it costs us, we just want to cling to you. And so do that this morning. I pray that you would encourage our souls as we walk through your word and we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. All right, Bible's open, Acts 16. Again, Paul and Silas here are in the city of Philippi. We're gonna pick up where we left off last week. Verse 16 says this, as we, as Paul and Silas and Luke, were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had a spirit of divination and brought her owners much gain by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. And this she kept doing for many days. Okay, let's talk through this. So Paul and Silas, these men are going to this place of prayer. And, and as they go, this slave girl begins to follow them. Now, we've got to understand that we got to have the right image that comes to our mind when we think of this slave girl. Kind of think uh, tattered and, and, and beaten up and, and broken and probably bruised and dirty. And this, this slave girl had a very low quality of life. The reality was her owners were just using her for their own gain. We see in the text it says her owners, they were making bank off of her ability to tell the future. And so this girl is, is enslaved by a demonic spirit that gives her the power to uh, just proclaim the future, this power of fortune telling. And back in this culture, it, Romans and Greeks, they put a really, really high stock on those who could tell the future. And so this slave girl was making her owners a lot of money. And here she, she begins to follow Paul and Silas around. And, and what she's screaming and yelling out is not untrue. She's screaming out, hey, these men, they, they proclaim to you the way of the most high God, the way of salvation, and, and that's true. But imagine with me for a moment, Paul and Silas trying to teach. Maybe they have a crowd like this, and they're trying to teach. And all of a sudden, someone stands up here and says, this guy is proclaiming the word of God. What's everybody thinking about? Not the word. They're thinking about that guy, right? 
It's distracting. It causes the people who are listening to what Paul and Silas are trying to teach, they're not thinking about the truth anymore. They're thinking about this slave girl. Imagine every couple minutes her yelling out, this, this man, he's proclaiming the way of the most high God. And eventually Paul goes, I, like, we're not getting any gospel work done. And so let's see how he responds here. Verse 18, and she kept doing this for many days. The slave girl, Paul, having become greatly, I love this. What's it say? Annoyed. Isn't that awesome? Parents, if you have kids in the car, maybe you've felt this way before, and they're like, dad, dad, mom, 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 mom. And finally go, hey, stop. (laughs) We're annoyed. And Paul, remember, he's just a man. He's just a human like us. And so I love this. Paul, he got annoyed. And what's he do? He turns to this slave girl. And he said to the demonic spirit, he said, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And it came out that very hour. And so Paul turns and delivers this girl into freedom. The demonic spirit leaves her that very instant because these demonic spirits are no match for the power of God. And so this girl is set free. However, remember who is making a lot of money off this girl? Her owners. And as you can imagine, they're not very happy about what has just taken place. And so let's jump in verse 19 and see the response of these owners. But when her owners came and they saw that their hope of gain was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and they dragged them into the marketplace before the rulers. And when they had brought them to the magistrates, they said, these men are Jews and they're disturbing our city. They advocate customs that are not lawful for us as Romans to accept or practice. And so the crowd joined in attacking them and the magistrates tore the garments off of them and gave orders to beat them with rods. And when they inflicted many blows upon them, they threw them into prison, ordering the jailer to keep them safely. Having received this order, he put them into the inner prison and fastened their feet in stocks. And so the, owner, the owners of this slave girl respond with great anger and violence. They grab Paul and Silas and they begin to take them to the marketplace. And this isn't a friendly game of follow the leader. Like, hey guys, come this way. It says they're dragging them through the streets into this marketplace where these magistrates or the judges of that day would have been. And so they bring Paul and Silas before the judge and they say, hey, these men are teaching customs that are unlawful for us as Romans to accept. Now, if that were true, that's a big deal in the Roman culture. But Paul and Silas are just being falsely accused. These owners know what's going to stir up the judge, and they know even more than that what's going to stir up the crowds. And so as these men begin to cry out to the judges, here's what these, these Paul and Silas, here's what they're doing, a crowd begins to form. And, and what was kind of a crazy scene turns into just straight chaos. And so the crowd begins in joining, in, and they're yelling and screaming and, and saying, yes, th- these men, they're, they're false. They're, they're, they're pulling us away from these Roman customs. And you can imagine Paul and Silas trying to speak up and defend themselves, but their voices just being drowned out by the crowds and the screams and the shouts. And so the judge orders them to be stripped, to be beaten, and to be thrown into max security prisons. That's exactly what happened. Paul and Silas are stripped there in the marketplace. They're beaten with rods. These would have been called lictor rods. They look like this. So this isn't just like one little rod. These are substantial. It was a a bundle of rods that these lictors, or kind of the police of that day, would carry around. And so they begin to beat Paul and Silas with these lictor rods. And these rods were known not only to break skin, but also to bruise and potentially break bones. 
And so Paul and Silas here are suffering. They're in great pain. And so after a while, after they're done with the beating, they get drug across the street over to this jail. And, and, and I think it's important that we get the right image of what these jails would have looked like. This is actually from the ruins of the city of Philippi. And a jail would have been similar to this, very dirty, not comfortable. And here they are having just been stripped and beaten and they're bloody and they're bruised, potentially bones broken. They're dirty. They're laying on rocks. And I don't know about you, but if that's me, I'm probably laying there if I'm Paul and Silas going, hey God, what are you doing? Like here we are in Philippi trying to encourage this church and build into this church and build up these believers. And we look around and we're in, we're in prison. And we just got beat with these rods and our, our bodies are bloody and, and bruised. And maybe there's some anger, some questioning towards God. There's some, I would be feeling angry towards men, falsely accused and in a matter of minutes, But let's see how Paul and Silas respond. Verse 25. Remember all that they had been through. About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God. And the prisoners were listening to them. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Stripped, beaten, falsely accused, thrown into a prison. You can imagine their bodies are in such pain they can't sleep because what time were they up? Midnight. And back in that culture, people went to bed a lot earlier than we do because guess what they didn't have? Electricity. And even more than that, they didn't have phones and TVs to keep them up. Nobody stayed up till midnight. And here they are. They can't sleep. Their bodies are in pain. And what are they doing? They what? First they, and then they, they pray and they sing. How? How? How is this possible after all they've been through? How? How can they pray and sing? That's unbelievable. And we're going to come back to that and unpack that. But we're going to see the massive impact that their praying and singing has on those around them. Pick it up again here in verse 26. We see Paul and Silas. They're praying. They're singing to God. And it says, And suddenly there was a great earthquake so that the foundations of the prison were shaken and immediately all the doors were opened and everyone's bonds were unfastened. When the jailer woke and saw that the prison doors were open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself, supposing that the prisoners had escaped. But Paul cried out with a loud voice, do not harm yourself for we are all here. And so we see God shows up in a really mighty way. And I think we would expect to read this and go like, man, this is awesome. The doors have flown open. The chains are are off of them. They're free. And and this is Paul and Silas. This is their ticket out. And not only them, this is all the other prisoners. Like, they get to get out of here. And that's what the jailer thinks. And so he grabs his sword. He's about to kill himself because that would have been his punishment if all these prisoners escaped. But Paul yells out, hey, 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 don't do this. We're all still here. Which, can we be honest, is just kind of weird. Like here you have the doors fly open, the chains break off, and like why? I, don't, I honestly have no clue why they're all still there, but they are. But God's going to use this for a deliverance. Not maybe the deliverance that Paul and Silas thought, but we're going to see God show up as deliverer in a mighty way. Keep reading. Pick it up here in verse 29. 
And the jailer called for lights. And he rushed in. And trembling with fear, he fell down before Paul and Silas. And then he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you and your household. And they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all who were in his house. And he took them the same hour of the night and washed their wounds. And he was baptized at once, he and all his family. Then he brought them up into his house and he set food before them. And he rejoiced along with his entire household that he had believed in God. And so upon seeing what has happened, you can imagine the jailer having, having experienced the last couple hours and seeing what Paul and Silas went through and seeing in the midst of all this, how they were able to maintain joy and sing and pray. And the jailer's going, hey, whatever you guys have, I want that. Like, how can I be saved? And just this simple gospel message as Paul and Silas say, hey, believe in Jesus. And so the jailer, somewhere in the midst of all this, rushes to his home. He gets his family, and it tells us his family and him receive the word of the Lord together. And I love the immediate transformation that happens in this jailer's life as he surrenders his life to Jesus. He goes from the one who is set in charge of kind of like protecting these prisoners and, and making sure they didn't escape to now, he actually invites them over their, his house and begins to care for them. It says he cleans their wounds. He uh, feeds them. They have a meal together. They rejoice together. The immediate transformation of the spirit of Jesus in this jailer's life is phenomenal. This man and his family, their lives have been changed forever by the delivering power of our God. Eventually, they return back to the jail and they head to bed for the night. And let's see what happens the next day here as the story concludes. Pick it up in verse 35. But when it was day, the magistrates, magistrates sent the police saying, let these men go. And the jailer reported these words to Paul saying, the magistrates have sent to let you go. Therefore, come out now and go in peace. But Paul said to them, they have beaten us publicly uncondemned men who are Roman citizens and have thrown us into prison. And do they now throw us out secretly? No, let them come themselves and take us out. And so the police reported these words to the magistrates and they were afraid when they heard that they were Roman citizens. So they came and apologized to them and they took them out and asked them to leave the city. So they went out of the prison and visited Lydia. And when they had seen the brothers, they encouraged them and departed. So ultimately we see God here works for the deliverance of Paul and Silas from this jail. They get to encourage the believers before they go and then they continue on their way carrying the gospel to city after city. Such an amazing story for us. And I think in a lot of ways, this follows the pattern we've seen in the book of Acts. As Jesus' followers were just faithful to follow the Lord where he led them. And in the midst of that, this persecution happens. And in the midst of the persecution, the gospel thrives. But we're going to see specifically in this story three ways that we can rejoice in suffering for Jesus. Three ways that I believe God actually can, can work in our hearts to help us rejoice in the midst of suffering. Number one is this, I can rejoice in suffering for Jesus because God reveals himself clearly. I can rejoice in, in suffering for Jesus. I can rejoice in persecution for Jesus because God reveals himself clearly. Think back on this story and, and how many ways Paul and Silas got to see God show up. Let's just talk through a few. They got to see God as sustainer. In the midst of uh, those, those lictor rods getting time and time again thrown on their backs and their bodies and they're bruised and they're bloodied. And through all of that, God sustained them. He kept breath in their lungs. 
And they got to experience God as the sustainer, even in the midst of pain. They got to see God as powerful. I mean, God sent a stinging earthquake in response to their praying and singing. God showed up, and he showed up in a powerful way. They get to see God not just as sustainer, but they get to see God as powerful. They see God as faithful. God reveals himself to them as faithful. Even while they're sitting in this dirty, grimy jail cell, God heard their cries. He heard their prayers. He heard their songs. He was with them every step of the way. They got to see God as the one who transforms setbacks into triumphs. Again, think of of Paul and Silas sitting in this jail cell going, God, what are you up to? Uh, We were here, we were serving the church and things were going really well and this feels like a giant setback and God took what looked like a setback and he turned it into an awesome triumph of his grace. And, And I believe these are all things that Paul and Silas knew intellectually. But God used suffering and persecution to help them see it more clearly. See, I I believe this this morning, that suffering is one of the greatest lens through which God chooses to reveal himself to his people. Suffering is one of the greatest lens through which we get to see God more clearly. God will use persecution and suffering to reveal himself himself to us. And I I want us to kind of think about it this way. Uh, How many of you wear uh, contacts or glasses? Hands up. Okay, decent amount of uh, people. So how many of you, if you take your contacts out or your glasses off, uh, you're you're pretty much done. You like, yeah. Um, I have a friend, I won't name names, but he is on the pastoral staff, I'll tell you that much, um, who we will drive places and we'll get to where we're going and I'll be talking about like, hey, do you see that sign on the wall? He's like, no, I can't read that. Like, you drove us here. Like, put your glasses on. <laughs> we know for many of us, if we take our glasses off, things just kind of become blurry and, and, and fuzzy. And maybe you could walk into a room and talk about some of the shapes. And you could go like, yeah, those are words, but I can't tell you exactly what it says or what those shapes are. I think oftentimes in our relationship with Jesus, what happens is, we know these things intellectually, and I could tell you, like, yeah, God is, God is good. I could tell you, yeah, God is, is faithful. God is loving. God is just. And, and I know these things intellectually, but if we're really honest, it's all kind of a bit blurry and fuzzy. And I think what happens is God grants us the privilege of walking through persecution and gives us the lens through which we can now see God clearly where it once was fuzzy and it's like, yeah, I kind of know that about God. God gives us suffering and persecution to allow us to see him in a really clear way. Where some of us in this room, maybe intellectually, before we had some persecution in our life, we maybe knew, yeah, God is faithful. It was through the lens of persecution that you got to see and experience God's faithfulness. And what was once just kind of like, yeah, it's blurry, it's fuzzy, I know it, but it's out there, it now becomes clear. And we can begin to see and know and taste that the Lord is good. Suffering is the lens that God grants his people to reveal himself to them. 
Now, I think what can often happen is God can give us those lens, but sometimes it's in the midst of the suffering and pain, we get so wrapped up in the hurt that we miss God up here. And we say like, ooh, this, this hurts, and ow, I'm in pain, and, and oh, I'm, I'm and, and we never look up. And instead, we're always focused in. We're focused in. We're focused in. And Paul and Silas, what did they do? They looked up and they got to see God reveal himself. So I think for some of us, the challenge isn't that we don't have the lens. It's that we've got to get our eyes up off of the inward. Like, oh, it hurts, it hurts, it hurts. And it does hurt. But we've got to see, even in the hurt, even in the pain, God is revealing himself. God is giving us the lens through which to see him more clearly. Look up. And don't miss it. When you get the privilege, when you get the joy of walking through persecution and suffering for Jesus, don't miss how God is revealing himself. Three ways that we can rejoice in suffering. Number one, I can rejoice in suffering because God reveals himself Clearly, number two is this. I can rejoice in suffering for Jesus because God works for my good. I can rejoice in suffering because God works for my good. And I know some of you are sitting out here and you're going like, oh yeah, the churchy thing. Like, yeah, God's using this for good. Um, I think we're gonna see in this text that God really does use this for good. And we're gonna see it here in verse 25. Remember, everything that just happened to Paul and Silas, they've been beaten, they've been uh, uh, falsely accused, they've been dragged through the streets, they're thrown into this prison. And, And remember verse 25. It says, about midnight, Paul and Silas were what? Praying and singing. Paul and Silas were praying and singing. And as we first walked through this together, we said, how? How is that possible? Like, are you kidding me? In the midst of what they just went through, how can you be praying and singing to God, rejoicing in who he is and what he's done? I believe Paul and Silas knew that God was working all of this out for for their good. And what was ultimately good for them? We've got to answer that question to understand how we can rejoice in this. Paul answers it for us in Philippians 3. The verse will be here on the screen. Paul says this. He says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. Paul and Silas understand the secret to rejoice in the midst of persecution. And it's this, anything that gets me closer to Jesus, anything that gets me more of Christ, this relationship with him where I get to be in love with Jesus more, I will rejoice in that. Because Jesus is what is ultimately good for me in this life. And I believe Paul and Silas understood that I'll suffer the loss of all things if that means I can have Jesus. And so you know what? Yeah, like our arms might look all janked up and our bodies may never recover and we got bruises and, but dude, let's sing. How? Because we're closer to Jesus now than we feel like we've ever been. We can rejoice. We can rejoice not because it was easy, not because it wasn't without pain, but because they got more of Jesus. And I think so many of us know this in our heads. And quite honestly, I know this in my head. 
But where I often get it wrong, I think, is, is in how I live. And I, I know that Jesus is what's actually good for me, but I think often if you were to look at my life, you would, you would think maybe there's some other things that I believe are better than Jesus. You would believe maybe like safety and security, uh, success, comfort, pleasure, fill in the blank. We all have different things. But we've got to wrestle with the question, if the world were to look at our life, would they know that Jesus is ultimately good or would it paint a picture of something else being ultimately good? And I think for Paul and Silas, as we look at their life, as we look at how they responded to this, there's no doubt in our minds that we can look at what they went through and said, they believe that Jesus and this closeness to Jesus, this relationship with Jesus, that's what's best in this life. I think it's so clear as they walk through this persecution together. I want to tell you the story of, uh, of a woman named Helen, who I think illustrates this in a beautiful way for us. And there's so many stories of those who've walked through persecution that we could share, but I want to share this one. This woman named Helen, she was imprisoned for two and a half years inside a metal shipping container for refusing to recount and renounce the name of Jesus. At one point during her imprisonment, she'd been writing notes of encouragement and sending scripture to other prisoners. And so the guards came to her and they asked, hey, uh, Helen, where's your Bible? And she said, I don't, I don't have a Bible. They go, okay, uh, where are you getting all this scripture from? She said, it's in my, it's in my head. And so they said, okay, well, we're going to have to beat that out of you. And so they pull her out of the metal shipping container. They drag her to the courtyard of the jail that she's in, and they begin to beat her head. And in the middle of this happening to her, listen to what she says. She looks up at the man and she says, I do not hate you. For you are just carrying out an order. But you need to know that I'm carrying out an order too. And that's to never turn on the name and the person of Jesus. So carry on. When they finished beating her, she sang the following. She sang, thank you for the cold nights. Thank you for the hot days. Thank you for the hunger. Thank you for the sickness. Thank you for the bugs that bite my body. Thank you for the beatings. Thank you. And just like Paul and Silas, we got to listen to this story and go, how? How? How is that possible? Whatever she has, I want that. She continues on later in her story and she says this. Like driving a nail into wood, every hit, every beating, every hot day, every cold night, every bug, every torture I went through, it drew me closer to the Lord. You want to know how Helen could come out of what she went through and thank God? It's because she knew that Jesus was what was ultimately good for her in this life. And so she could come out on the other side of everything she went through and praise God and thank God for it because all of that, it drew me closer to Jesus. How can we rejoice in suffering? How can we rejoice in persecution? We've got to understand that God is working for our good and what's ultimately good for us is closeness to Jesus, just more of him, more of him, more of him. And if that means I've got to walk through some pain to have more of him, if that means I'm going to be rejected, if that means I'm going to be falsely accused, then bring it on if I get more of Jesus. 
Three ways I can rejoice in suffering. One, God reveals himself clearly. Number two, is God is working for my good. And then number three, I can rejoice in suffering for Jesus because God advances the gospel. I can rejoice in suffering for Jesus because God advances the gospel. Remember in our story here of Paul and Silas, they're beaten, they're, they're battered, they're bruised, they're bleeding, they're thrown into this inner cell and the jailer sees all this happen and he hears through the night this singing and this praying. And as Paul and Silas do this, it makes the gospel look glorious. It makes the gospel of Jesus look incredible. And so the jailer is sitting there and he's, he's watching these, these men with smiles on their faces and blood running down their body, praising the Lord. And so the jailer goes, I, I've never seen anything. What, what you guys have, I need it. How can I to be saved? Because in the midst of their pain, in the midst of persecution, these men understood and realized that we have a chance to make the gospel look glorious. And so they prayed and sang, and this jailer goes, whatever these guys have, I want more of that. The reality is this, suffering for Jesus is fertile soil for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus. Suffering for Jesus is fertile soil for the advancement of the gospel of Jesus. John Piper says it this way. He says, think about the history of missions. If you have any inkling of how we got to where we are today with 1.3 or 1.4 billion people professing faith in Jesus Christ when it started from 12, how did we get there? And you know what the answer is? Suffering. Listen to this. There never has been a breakthrough into an unreached place or people without suffering. It's going to come. Don't think it's strange when it comes. It's the price. He, Jesus, paid his life for our salvation. Now we get to join him in that suffering to display the nature of it. How are they, the world, going to see how satisfying Jesus is in us if we look like it's the things of this world that are really satisfying? And so as we walk through persecution, as we walk through suffering, to get our eyes up and not miss the gospel opportunity in it, to be able to show the world around us how glorious and how beautiful the gospel of Jesus is. And as we kind of wrap up our time together this morning, I want to finish with a story of a man named Joseph. Joseph was a Maasai warrior in a tribe in Africa. And one day Joseph was walking along a hot, dirty African road, and he met someone who shared the gospel of Jesus Christ with him. And then and there, he accepted Jesus as Lord and Savior. And the power of the Spirit began transforming his life, and he was filled with such excitement and joy that the first thing he wanted to do is he wanted to return to his own village, and he said, I got to share the gospel with these people. And so Joseph began going from door to door, telling everyone he met about the cross, about suffering, and the salvation that it offered. And he expected to see their faces light up the way that his head when he heard of Jesus. To his amazement, the villagers not only didn't care, they became violent. The men of the village seized him and they held him to the ground while the women beat him with strands of barbed wire. He was dragged from the village and he was left to die alone in the bush. Joseph somehow managed to crawl to a water hole and there after days of passing in and out of consciousness, he found the strength to get up and he, 
he wondered about the hostile reception that he had received from the people that he had known all his life. He'd grown up with these people. And so he decided, I, I must have said something wrong or maybe I left something out. And so he rehearsed the message and he decided to go back and share this message again. And so Joseph limped into the circle of huts and began to proclaim to them, Jesus died for you so that you could find forgiveness and come to know the living God. Again, he was grabbed by the men of the village and held while the women beat him, reopening wounds that had just begun to heal. Once more, they dragged him unconscious from the village and left him to die. To have survived the first beating was amazing, but to live through the second was a miracle. Again, days later, Joseph awoke in the wilderness, bruised and scarred and determined to go back. Are you kidding me? Go back? Come on, dude. Can't you take a hint? Here he is, determined to go back. He returned to the small village, and this time they attacked him before he even had the chance to open his mouth. As they flogged him for the third and possibly the last time, he again spoke to them of Jesus Christ as Lord. Before he passed out, the last thing he saw was the women who were beating him begin to weep. This time he awoke in his own bed. The ones who had so severely beaten him were now trying to save his life, nurse him back to health, and the entire village came to know Jesus. We can rejoice in suffering because God advances the gospel. And when we love Jesus and we see that he is our ultimate good, our hearts can't help but lead us back to people who maybe reject at one time. Maybe they reject at two times. Maybe they reject at 19, 20, 21, but we keep going, we keep going, we keep going, and we believe, we cling to the fact that God will use persecution and suffering for the advancement of the gospel. Three ways we can rejoice in suffering for Jesus. God reveals himself clearly. And so for us, we gotta be watching. Get our eyes up. Don't miss those times as you're walking through persecution and suffering for Jesus. Look up and see how God is revealing himself. Number two, I can rejoice in suffering because God is working for my good. And so for us, we, we need to get as close to Jesus as possible. We need to toss aside anything that's pulling us away from him and run back as hard as we can, as fast as we can to Jesus. And thirdly, I can rejoice in suffering for Jesus because God advances the gospel. So get ready. And if you're in a season of just maybe rejection, maybe a persecution of some kind, suffering for following Jesus of some kind, get ready. Because the gospel is getting ready to do a, a, a major work. Now, I can't tell you when. It could be tomorrow. It could be next month. It could be next year. It could be years and years and years from now. But gospel seeds are being planted. And in the soil of suffering, the gospel will advance. And so for us, let's get our eyes up. Let's cling to Jesus. And let's get ready to watch him work. Let's pray together. Father, I thank you and I praise you this morning for your word and for a story like this, as, as we look at, at what these men endured and we see God in the midst of this, they rejoiced. 
They prayed and they sang to you, God. And what an encouragement that is to our soul to know that I can rejoice in suffering for Jesus. That we can rejoice when when persecution comes, God, let us be a church. Let us be a people who says, we're blessed. This is awesome. We're going to be glad. It doesn't feel good. But we're going to rejoice and be glad in this because we know, God, you're going to reveal yourself. We know that you're going to use it to draw us close to you. And we know you're going to use it so that the gospel can advance. And we're going to praise you for those things. So God, I pray that even in our church, God, even in our midst, you would use persecution to draw us back to a close relationship with Jesus, a nearness to Jesus, and rid us of all those things that pull us away from that. And so we praise you for your word. We thank you for who you are and all that you have done for us. And we pray it all in Jesus' awesome and matchless name. Amen.